see you today in the Lord's house on this New Year's Day, New Year's Eve Day. Yes. And uh, let's look back at the past year on the blessings of the past year. Thank the Lord for that. All right, good to see you this morning. Welcome, everybody. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for your many blessings. <coughs> help us to be people with gratitude in our hearts as we look back to the year and as we uh, endeavor to uh, have the right goals and the right spiritual goals, especially for this new year coming upon us. Give us wisdom. Give us strength. Give us health. Pray be with our pastors today, each Sunday school teacher, and uh, help us to worship the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Uh, the lesson, we're still in studies in Romans, and the lesson is dead to sin. The uh, key verse is, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. Colossians 1.21. <clears throat> and that happens when we, we become dead to sin. The central truth of the lesson is the Christian life is yielded completely to Jesus Christ. Completely. The lesson is taken from Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 18. Here's a quote from A Call to Prayer. The beauty of the gospel is not that sin is overlooked, but searched out and forgiven. Not that sin is a trifle, but it is shown up in all its hideousness and destroyed. That's good. I like that. See, Norman Bartlett said, Grace is not to give freedom to sin, but to bring freedom from sin. An abscessed tooth is like sin. No matter how much you try to put it off and just get temporary relief, the fact remains, it is still there and will, not ha and will have to be eradicated. You know what that's like when you go to the dentist, get this thing out of here. I don't care, take it out. The Lord wants the key to every closet in your heart and to every room in your home. That's good. Amen. Well, let's sing about this. Let's sing My Burden of Sin is Gone. And that is uh, uh, number 405, 405 in your hymnals, number 405 in your hymn books. Didn't have any trouble finding a parking spot this morning. I think some people are not well. Please pray for Bernice. She's not well this morning coming down with something. I'm thankful that the Lord gave, that I got a clear uh, report on my x-ray, so I guess I'm over this 
scourge that I've had to put up with. Hope so. (laughs) My burden is gone, number 405. true for any of us. No more burden of sin. Thank you, Crystal. All right. Birthdays and anniversaries. Jerry and Ellie Hollenbach, happy anniversary. And Darren Durkee, happy birthday to Darren. Communion service tonight at 6.30 p.m. That's the only announcement listed in our bulletin right now. All right, and something that the Lord 
wanted us to do, wanted to make sure we uh, have communion. Didn't the Lord say, do this often? All right, so that's tonight at 6.30, our communion service. All right, let's ask the Lord to help us our, our prayer. Church that we're praying for this morning is Millmont, College Missionary Church, Pastors Michael McMillan and Cade Davis. All right, I remember when Cade was a little kid like this in the elementary school. <laughs> now he's pastoring, praise the Lord. All right, I could name another other people here in our congregation this morning that I had as students in school. All right, better not start that, I guess. But anyway, prayer requests. Um, let's remember Bernice this morning. She's got some kind of throat cold or something, something. So let's pray for her. Any requests you want to mention out loud otherwise this morning? Let's remember this request this morning. Unspoken requests. A lot of hands. Let's keep remembering those amongst us who are not well. There are physical needs listed on the back. A lot of names. A lot of names. You can see them right there. People who have physical needs. The Lord's able to touch us. I'm thankful for how the Lord's helped me and touched me. I talked to the uh, x-ray person the other day, and she said there's a lot of this coughing going on, and they don't really even know what it is. So a lot of stuff going on. Let's pray one for another. Let's remember these unspoken requests, and let's all stand as we pray together. Let's just all pray this morning together. Let's pray for our speaker this morning, Brother Black. It's going to be teaching this morning. Pray for every Sunday school teacher. Thank you, Lord, for your many blessings and privilege we have to come before you in prayer this morning. Do be with Bernice and continue to touch her. Lord, you see the names on our bulletin, many, many people who have physical needs. And Lord, with faith, you're able to undertake for us, Lord, for each one of these who are listed uh, on the back of our bulletin and even those who may be on our heart. Remember Andy's request this morning? You know every detail of every situation there. We pray you'll undertake for that. You know what's involved in every upraised hand this morning. Uh, each need, you know the history of every need, Lord. You know the burdens, and we pray you'll undertake. You are able to do it more than we can ask or think this morning. Meet every spiritual need of those in attendance this morning on this New Year's Eve day. We pray, Lord, you'll be with our pastors today, helping every part of our services. We pray you'll be with every Sunday school teacher this morning. Every Sunday school teacher from the little kindergarten age children all the way up through the teenagers and the other young adults, and then help in this class. Help Caleb this morning as he teaches this class this morning. We pray, O oh God, you'll be with the Millmont God's Missionary Church and their pastors and everyone involved in their church. 
that is oriented to serving there in that church. Lord, we need you every day. We need you every day as we look forward now to a new year. Help us to be determined, Lord, to be your servants, be all that you have us to be. We ask your gracious help in Jesus' name this morning. Amen. We'll have the offering at this time. And uh, please be praying for our teacher this morning. <clears throat> Good morning, everyone. Have quite the Sunday here, right between Christmas and New Year's. Hopefully, everyone had a good Christmas. I certainly did. It's kind of nice today. Um, this morning, a couple of my brothers walked in, and you know, I've always wanted to preach at them, so this is going to be a good opportunity. Have a lot to say, so you guys get to listen in. Um, our lesson today is on Romans chapter six. Some of the key words in Romans 6 you'll find are like sin, dead, grace is a word, free. Um, when I teach, if I, um, I tell my students that I summarize Romans chapter 6 in three words as freedom from sin. It's kind of what I think it's all about. Um, an illustration about freedom, a little story. One day there was a rabbit. He was an experimental rabbit who was trapped in a laboratory where he had been born and been brought up. And he somehow one day managed to escape. He scurries away from the compound. He feels the grass under his feet. He sees the dawn breaking for the first time in his life. Wow, this is great, he thought. It wasn't long before he came to a hedge and squeezing under it, he saw a wonderful sight. Lots of other little bunny rabbits, all free and nibbling at the lush grass. Hey, he called out, I'm a rabbit from the, lab from the laboratory, and I've just es escaped. Are you guys wild rabbits? Yeah, come join us, they said. So he hopped over to them, and he started eating grass. Oh, it tasted so good. Well, what else do rabbits do, he asked. Oh, lots of things. And they showed him thing after thing that they would do. They came to a field, and they're like, here, there's carrots in this field. So they went, and for the next hour, the rabbit just ate carrot after carrot after carrot after carrot. They were wonderful. Um, later, he said, what else? Well, there was another field. It was full of lettuce. Um, we ate it as well. So we went over, and he just ate it and ate it, and it tasted so good. That was fantastic, he panted. So are you going to live with us, the other rabbits asked. Oh, I'm sorry, said the rabbit. I had a great time, but I can't. The wild rabbits all stared at him, confused. Why? We thought you like it here. Oh, I do, he said, but I have to get back to the laboratory. I'm just dying for a cigarette. <laughs> you see, the rabbit, he had escaped from the laboratory. He'd gotten out of it, but in a sense, he hadn't really gotten it out of him. He was still under some bondage to his old experience, his old life. He wasn't, in a sense, really completely free, was he? 
But that's not the kind of freedom that Paul talks about in Romans 6. We can be really, completely, and totally free from sin. So let's look at a little bit of background information. Romans is sometimes kind of an intimidating book. It's looked at as Paul's big theological work where he talks about big things, about righteousness of God, and lots of talk about salvation and things like that. Um, It was probably written in the mid-50s AD. Paul actually is writing it to Romans who he had actually never met. If you read chapter 1, he hadn't met them yet, but he wanted to come see them. Um, Many people outline the book in all kinds of different ways, but um, here's one way I saw that I thought I might mention. At the beginning, he talks about how everyone's under God's judgment. Then he talks about how Christ has become the living revelation of God's righteousness so that everyone who believes, both Jews and Gentiles, can be brought into God's family. And then third, God's righteous plan gives us hope in our battle against sin, and that's where we are. Um, Some people have pointed to verses like Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 as kind of a thesis or a summary statement for the book. Verse 16 tells us, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God. So now we're going to jump in here to chapter 6. Um, and learn about this battle against sin and freedom from sin. Um, Our lesson technically starts on verse 3, but before we get there, I want to cover verse 1 and 2 and just a little bit more background information. I want to talk about some terms. Since this lesson talks about sin so much, I think it's important to define what we're talking about. In our Sunday school lesson, at least in the copy I have, there's a section that it talks about the definition, what exactly is sin. Now, when the Bible talks about sin, um, it's actually a really important doctrine. Jesus died to save us from our sin, right? Jesus, those who are born of God, don't commit sin. We can be free from sin. It's kind of important to understand what it is. One man, Richard S. Taylor, he says that if our conception of sin is faulty, our whole superstructure will be one error built on the other, each one more absurd than the last, yet each one necessary if it is to fit in consistently with the whole erroneous scheme. If we're going to end right, we need to start right, and we must grapple with the question of sin in all of its doctrinal significance. Another man, Leslie Wilcox, a Bible Methodist from about 50 years ago, he said, all other doctrine will be out of focus unless we have a correct scriptural understanding of this one. So we kind of need to understand what sin is to understand the chapter. So what is sin? When we talk about sin, there's two different ways the Bible talks about it. The Bible can talk about an act of sin, that's something you do, or it'll talk about the nature of sin. Sometimes we call that original sin. Sometimes we call it even carnality, different terms like that. So what's the nature of sin? It's kind of, um, well, let me, I can read you a theological definition. Um, it's, uh, it's, an, um, it's depravity, the corruption of the nature of all offspring of Adam by reason of which everyone has gone very far from original righteousness or the pure state of our first parents at the time of their creation. To kind of put it simply, it's an evil corruption. It's like a disease that everyone's born with. We're not responsible for, but we're all born with, and it entices us to commit acts of sin. And we're all born with, and we all have it, until God purifies our heart in sanctification. 
Romans 7, the next chapter, talks a lot about that. Paul talks about how sin dwells in him. Um, how it's something that deceives, it works death, and it kind of has this controlling power over one. Um, sometimes in the Bible you'll see phrases like the carnal mind, the mind of the flesh, the flesh, the old man, the root of bitterness, the seed of sin, indwelling or inbred sin, original sin, depravity. Those are all terms that kind of describe this disease of sin. But then we also have acts of sin. That's something you do. A person can murder someone. We call that an act of sin. We describe that as a voluntary transgression against the known law of God. You can find this in numerous different passages in the Bible. One of the ones I go to first is 1 John chapter 3, 4. In the King James it says that sin is the transgression of the law. What's transgression of the law? For the King James translators, the word transgression implies a moral act, a breaking of something known. Today, other people translate it as using words like lawlessness or disobedience or rebellion. If you would do a big study on it, you know, and the Greek word underline it, scholars are pretty united that it's something that's a choice of rebellion against God. It's not an accident. It's an act of rebellion against God. So we have the nature, it's a corruption that you're not responsible for, but God can purify you and cleanse you from. Then you have acts of sin. That's what sends you to hell. That's something you're responsible for, and it's an act of disobedience or rebellion to God. Now, throughout Romans 6, Paul will talk about sin. Sometimes he'll talk about both of them. Sometimes he'll talk about one or maybe even the other. Um, but it's important to understand what sin is when he talks about it so much. Um, verse number 1 in Romans 6 says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse number 2, God forbid! How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now when I read this verse, it reminds me of one day I was sitting in college. Um, and if you've ever been in college, you can probably empathize or, with my description. It was one of those early morning classes. And so you're all sitting there, and of course you're paying perfectly good attention, catching every word the teacher says and exactly everything. Or maybe most of the class is struggling to stay awake, or maybe they're doing something they shouldn't be doing and that's why they're awake. I was probably a better picture of it. Anyway, we're sitting there. I can still remember where it was, uh, about where I was sitting. The teacher was Stephen Paulus. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the class, the teacher, I think he bangs his hand on the desk, and he screams at us. Like, out of the blue, it seemed like. I remember, like, I was shocked. Like, <clears throat> you know, like, you feel that, like, shock jolt up through your spine. Um, because he was actually teaching on this. No, he actually wasn't yelling, in a sense, at us. He was trying to get Paul's point of this passage across. See, um, Paul asked the rhetorical question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul had just been talking about God's wonderful, amazing grace and how it's greater than sin. So if grace is greater than sin, and grace always overcomes sin, that would mean the more sin, the more grace, right? And if the more grace, the more God is glorified. So the more we sin, the more God is glorified. So we should sin all the time, right? That's kind of the reasoning that Paul's responding to. And so my teacher, in talking about this, shouted, no, and he bangs his desk. And of course, since we hadn't been really closely paying attention, 
And our teacher doesn't really do that usually. It all shocked us. I've never forgotten it. Now when I teach this, a um, few of you, your kids might have been in class with me. When I teach this, I bring an air horn to class. <laughs> and so I slide an air horn out of my desk, subtly, at least hopefully subtly, and I you know, just calmly ask the question, shall we continue and send the grace my around? Bonk! And they're like, ooh! And they'll wake up then, and they remember the answer is a no, and absolutely not. God forbid. May it never be. Um, Paul's very forceful in explaining no. Actually, um, the other rooms around me, sometimes the other students, they hear that, and they're like, oh, Mr. Black's in Romans 6 again. Um, a funny story about that is um, Mr. D was talking about Kay Davis. His wife one time subbed for me. She was a substitute teacher, and she was preparing for a test. On the t and what she was doing is she was asking the students questions that they would need to know for the test. So she gets to this question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the students have heard me yell, no, bang the desk, use an air horn, all kinds of loud things to try to get them to catch the point. So they all respond by banging their desk and yelling as loud as they can at her, no. But of course, she's not expecting that at all. And so she screams. <laughs> um, but Paul's point here is it's an absolutely not. Grace isn't an excuse for sin. Grace is an ability to overcome sin. Um, so it's not at all. The more grace, or the more we sin, the more God's grace is shown, the more God's grace is shown, the more God's glorified. So we should sin to have more grace. Paul's answer is in the strongest possible terms, absolutely not. The first verse specifically mentioned in the lesson is Romans 6 and verse 3. It says, know ye not, or don't you guys know that so many of, uh, of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. So baptism here, it's, it's a picture of a spiritual truth. In the early church, usually when a person would get saved, they would get saved, they would choose to follow Jesus, and then they would get baptized. You can look at examples in Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 9, Acts 10. Um, one good example is when Philip met the Ethiopian eunuch, and he told him the gospel, basically. And the Ethiopian, Ethiopian eunuch believed it, and then he said, well, can I get baptized? Well, and so he went and got baptized right away after that. Um, so Paul assumes that these Roman believers were baptized right at their conversion, and they would vividly recall that experience. Those who believe in Christ are baptized, in a sense, into him, and even, in a sense, into his death. In other words, they're baptized to become one with Christ. As Jesus died, we die to our old sinful lifestyle, and a new life begins. So how could one continue in sin if the, if the life which they now lived, even while in their mortal body, if it was life that they had in union with Christ? If they died to their old life, and their new life is a life of union with Christ, how could that union with Christ life live in sin? That doesn't really make sense. It's just a contradiction in terms. Um, and that's Paul's point. That's obviously not. Don't you guys know, he says. Verse number four says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. William Greathouse explains that what Jesus' burial was to him, baptism is to us. It follows our prior death to sin 
publicly demonstrating its finality. But this baptism of death, it's done so that we can walk in newness of life. There's this death and life. We're dead to sin, but we're alive unto God. So as he died, we die to our old sinful lifestyle. And as he rose to new life for us, a new life begins in us. Verse 5 says, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So you have this interesting phrase here, planted together. It's kind of an unusual phrase for like people. Um, it kind of means united with or joined with. So the logic is, if we've been united with Christ in his death, when Christ rises again, we're united with him in his resurrection still. So God's plan was that in Christ's death, believers would die to sin and rebellion, but in his, as Christ was raised, we would be raised from death to eternal life with God. Ultimately, our death to sin and our newness of life, it's all because of Jesus' death on the cross for us. Verse 6 says, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So, first of all, it says this old man is crucified. What is this old man? Is that like your dad or something? You know, do you crucify your dad? Actually, one year, my brother, Eric, who's sitting back here with a mischievous look on his face, he teaches at UBC. And one year after he went to UBC, he came back for Christmas, and he told us about how at UBC, for every event they do, they have a theme. You know, it could be missions convention, and they could have a theme like reaching the lost. It could be week number two of school, and they might have a theme. I don't know. Just they had a theme for everything, this little phrase for every event they did. Evidently, Adam Buckler loves having these catchphrases for things they did. Um, and so he came back for Christmas, and, you know, he said, you know, we should have, you know, a theme for our Christmas. And he suggested, since we all like to study the Bible and stuff like that, our theme could be crucify the old man. My dad didn't seem too excited about that theme for some reason. Um, so, but that's actually not what Paul means. It doesn't mean, you know, kill your old man in that sense. So what is this old man? Um, there's obviously, as with anything in the Bible, there's lots of debate. And I actually spent, oh, I spent a bunch of time just looking at that to try to understand it. But um, to put it simply, the holiness, early holiness writers are all about unanimous in the way they interpret it. Later ones start to change a little bit. But early holiness writers, the ones who are, to be honest, my favorite, they pretty much all interpret the old man as the carnal nature, the orig original sin or the nature of sin. Um, and I don't really see sufficient reason to say that, oh yeah, John Wesley and Adam Clark and all everyone else, they're all completely wrong. So what does it mean? It means that our sin nature can be crucified. Our sin nature can be destroyed, ended, ceased. It doesn't exist anymore. Um, so was, when something's crucified, is it still around? Does it still have control or power over you? No, Paul's using very strong emotive language to try to emphasize the finality of death we can have to that nature of sin that encourages us to sin. And it's through that crucifixion of the old man or the sin nature that we can confidently live above sin and not serve it. That's actually what we would call sanctification or the purification of the heart, where God cleanses our heart from that old man of sin. 
God calls us to live a life above sin, but he doesn't say, well, good luck. No, he helps us and he gives us the power over sin and he also purifies our hearts from sin. So through Christ's death, his crucifixion, we can have the old man or the sin nature crucified. That way sin can be destroyed in us. Now some people, they would like to say, well, we don't really get rid of this sin nature. We just suppress it. But suppression is a lot different than crucifixion, isn't it? The Bible says we crucify it. Um, I've heard the analogy. It's kind of like a balloon that has a weight on it. And sin is that weight. But once you fill the balloon so full, it's like as if the weight's not even there. But that, again, isn't the way the Bible describes it. We can get rid of the weight and get full both. Um, so sin, um, the old man of sin, he's crucified that sin can be destroyed. Now, destroyed doesn't mean suppressed. It doesn't mean inactive or something. No, it means annihilated. Um, I heard a joke once from an old Methodist book. I think it's about 100 years ago. Um, and I don't remember for sure the specific denomination he mentioned. Um, but I wasn't really wanting to take pot shots out of their denominations. So I decided I would change the term and just use the term evangelical. Most of us, we would be identified as evangelical. But unfortunately, most evangelicals today would believe in a religion a little bit like described in this old Methodist joke. So as the story goes, there was an old farmer. He lived out in the middle of nowhere, very dirty, very unkempt, very uneducated man who didn't really seem to have much contact with, with, with the rest of the world. One day, a nearby preacher heard that he was sick, and he might not make it too much longer. So he decided to pay him a call. When he went to visit the old man, he really quickly realized the man had lived a very rough, poor life, didn't, wasn't very well educated, couldn't speak very well. Um, when he asked the man about his soul, the old man just seemed confused, didn't know what he was talking about. He didn't really seem to know much about who Jesus was, what in the world salvation was, or anything else you might find important in the Bible. But once he asked the man if he was a Christian, the man responded, say, oh yes, I'm an evangelical. Confused, the pastor prodded a little further. I mean, the man said he basically admitted he knew nothing about Christianity, but now he's very confident that he's an evangelical. The preacher asked, well, do you go to an evangelical church? No. Do you know any evangelical pastors? No. Do you know what an evangelical believes? I don't know. So befuddled, he said, why in the world would you call yourself an evangelical? Well, he says, because I'm just like him. Forty years ago, I went to a church once, and they said they was evangelical. And I heard them preach and talk. And they said that they was just sinners, that they lied and they cheated and they stole. And I promptly knew I fit right in there because that's exactly who I was. And from that moment on, I knew I was an evangelical. To me, that's kind of sad because God can do so much more for us. To be honest, God requires so much more of us than that. Verse number seven kind of tells us that. It says, for he that is dead is freed from sin. When we die, we're freed from sin. In dying with Christ, we die to sin. Um, to de declare that Jesus can't set men free from sin is actually the entire opposite point of this chapter. Um, unfortunately, that's what many people believe today. But scripture says 
that God will enable us to avoid all acts of sin, and further, that God will purify our hearts from sin. Um, Noted Old Holiness scholar Daniel Steele put it this way, to assert or to say that the Holy God has made sin necessary under the reign of grace is to slander the Father and pronounce the redemptive plan a stupendous failure. Jesus died to save us from our sin, to destroy sin in us. And if sin can't be destroyed in us, then that's saying that Jesus failed. Obviously he didn't. Um, maybe I could explain it a little bit like this. Just a few days ago, I was at l l Grocery Store, one of my favorite places to shop. It's only partially a joke. Um, I was walking down the frozen food aisle when all of a sudden, well, actually I saw several things that were tempting to me. One of them specifically was a Reese's ice cream cake. And since it was at l l of course, it was a great price. And it looked good. It was good, too. Um, Now imagine with me that I had brought a corpse up here with me for my Sunday school lesson. Obviously, that'd be highly unusual. The police would get called, etc. But can you also imagine me trying to entice the dead man to eat some of that Reese's ice cream cake? How do you think that would work? I could tell him about how tasty it was. It's nice, it's cold, it's creamy. I could waft the smell over his nose. I don't think it's going to work, though. Why not? Because he's dead. You can't control a dead person, right? And that's kind of related to the picture that Paul's painting here. We can be dead We can be freed from sin. As long as we're dead, we don't serve sin. We're instead free from sin. Now, I don't think Paul wants us to take the analogy too far. One still has a free will. However, sin has no power or control over us unless we allow it to. If a servant dies, they no longer have to answer to their master. Sin was our master, but we can crucify the old man. And when we die, we're no longer under the power and control and influence of sin. Oh, we could still choose to reject God, but we're not dominated by sin anymore. But sins are, but death isn't the only aspect of this. There is also life. Because if we're dead with Christ, the next verse says, we believe that we shall also live with him. Not only does one die to be free from sin, one dies to live. The life we live is through Christ. One's dead to sin, but alive to righteousness. Whereas the unsaved person, they're alive to sin, but they're dead to righteousness. So death with Christ, it's not just an end, but it's also a beginning. Um, Verse 9 says, Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. We know without a doubt that Christ, having once risen from the grave, will never die again. It was a once and for all atonement for our sin, right? Sin's been conquered once and for all, and so death has no power, no control, no dominion over Christ. Verse 10 tells us, For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Christ died once to defeat sin. Um, He died for the sins of all and made the final payment. However, what's not final in a sense, is the life. He continues to live today. This has the implication that if we die with Christ, we're united with Him, then we're living to God, and we're obviously not controlled by what we died to. 
Verse 11 says, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So based on what we've learned, what are we to do? We are to reckon or consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Now this is all through the incredible work that Jesus did for us. Now, this isn't something that we're supposed to act like it's true when we know it's false. I mean, unfortunately, sometimes people do that in life. They act like something's true, but they know it's false. Sometimes people encourage us to do that spiritually. But that's not what this verse is saying. The word for reckon, it means to determine by mathematical process, to reckon, to calculate. It's something that's actually true. We need to realize that to be united with Christ means not only to be united with his righteousness, but it means to be completely free from sin. Think about it this way. If in Christ is no sin, and we are in Christ, then are we in sin? If we are sinning, and we are in Christ, that means sin would be in Christ. That's, that's actually an attack on who Jesus is. We can't be in Christ and in sin at the same time. Those are opposites. First John 3, 6 tells us, Whosoever abideth in him, that's God, they sinneth not. If we're abiding in Christ, we're not sinning. But if we are sinning, we're not abiding. In Christ is no sin. And Christians are in Christ. Verse 12 says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. So since we're dead to sin, duh, you don't let it control you. It's kind of the obvious point he's saying. Um, but simply, if you're dead to sin, how can it control you? It can't. Clark comments, Do not let sin reign. Do not let him work. Don't let him have a place, no being in your souls, because wherever he is, he governs less or more. Verse 13 says, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto God. Don't yield to sin. The word members here kind of refers to your body, like the members of your body, your hands, your feet, your tongue. We're not supposed to let any of those be the servants of sin. Your hands shouldn't be carrying out sinful things. Your feet, your tongue, anything like that. They shouldn't be implements or, you know, things that sin can use. We're to use our whole body instead as an instrument for Christ. Why? Well, verse 14 tells us, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. If we're dead to sin, again, Paul keeps emphasizing this, it doesn't control you anymore. To be honest, every once in a while, actually even in listening to this, or well, in studying for this, I listened to several people like talking or lecturing through Romans 6, and some of them talked about how it's true in a hypothetical, not real sense, but in real life we're still, you know, we still sin all the time and stuff like that. And I'm thinking, no, that's actually the opposite of his point. How, how can you be dead to sin and live in it? It makes me, honestly, it makes me sad to hear about those people who believe that there's nothing they can do to get out from underneath the control of sin. They long for heaven. I heard this just two days ago about a person who longs for heaven. That way he can be free from sin. And I'm thinking, no, God says he'll do it for you now. God will free from sin. Um, there's a few other key parts in this verse that should be thought about or examined, though. What does it mean that we're not under law, but under grace? 
again, there are some people who, they always want to jump at things like this and try to twist it the wrong way. And they'll say something like, oh, so we're not under the law, we're under grace, so it doesn't matter about the law, so I can break the law all I want because I'm under grace, not under the law. But that's not at all what Paul is saying. That would be the opposite of some of Paul's emphasis in this chapter. Um, Briefly, when Paul talks about the law, many times he's actually talking about the Mosaic law. Christians aren't under the old covenant, the covenant of the Jews. We're under the new covenant. You could call it the covenant of grace. Adam Clark says it like this. Ye are under the merciful and beneficial dispensation of the gospel, that although it requires the strictest conformity to the will of God, it affords sufficient power to be thus conformed. And in the death of Christ has provided pardon for all that is past, and grace to help in every time of need. So in the next verse, Paul's going to deal with those who want to say, oh, we can sin because it's about we're under grace, not under the law. So Paul says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? And this is the second place where I get my class because the answer is no! It's God forbid. Absolutely not. I kind of wish I'd brought my air horn. Um, this actually, it's kind of a parallel of verse 1. Um, almost the same thing. The difference mainly here is in verse 1, Paul seems to be talking about should we continue in sin? Whereas here the idea is should you even sin once? Because you're under grace, right? You can sin. No, absolutely not. God forbid. Grace is not a license to sin. Grace is God's ability, or it's a God-given ability to overcome sin. And remember, he's been spending this whole time explaining how if you're dead to sin and you're in Christ, you're not controlled by what you're dead to, and you're in Christ and in Christ is no sin, so you're not in sin. So the answer is no. He says, don't you guys know or know ye not, in verse 16, that to whom you yield yourselves to obey, his servants ye are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. If you sin, you're obeying sin and Satan, right? And hence, Paul says, you're the servant of sin. But instead, you can obey righteousness. You can be the servant of righteousness. So obviously here, Christians are the one who are servants of God. They're the servants of righteousness. Now, if we sin, God will forgive us right away. But um, that doesn't mean we can sin and not ask for forgiveness. You must be forgiven because Christians aren't living in sin. Christians don't sin. If you sin, he says, you're the servant of unrighteousness. Adam Clark says it like this. Sin is the servant of Satan. Sin is the service of Satan. Righteousness, the service of Christ. If you sin, you're the servants of Satan and not the servants of God. Harold Will puts it like this. Grace does not destroy human liberty. When you voluntarily give yourselves over as servants to anyone to do his will, your obedience to that one marks you as his particular servant. So are we servants of Christ or servants of sin? Remember, no man can serve two masters. You can serve righteousness or sin, but not both. Once a few years ago, I was sitting in a room full of people from a different theological background than I was. I was actually in one of my doctorate classes. I think every single one of them was either a preacher or maybe aspiring to be a teacher, something like that. Basically a bunch of preachers. They all had advanced degrees. I think they all, all had at least a master's degree and were working on doctorates. Um, and so they're well-educated people. And the topic of homosexuality came up. And I was astonished to hear what these Christians said. 
Now, they agreed that Christians shouldn't be engaging in acts of homosexuality. Now, that would be wrong. Um, but they continued to say, but obviously you could still be a Christian. I mean, it's not like you would backslide or anything because you were engaging in homosexuality. I mean, they really thought it was bad, though. And to emphasize their point of how bad they thought it was, they said that actually it could be true that if somebody was engaging in homosexuality and they were confronted with the clear truth of the Bible on it and they still chose to rebel against what the Bible said and continue doing it, it could get so bad that God would take them home to heaven early. But that's not at all what Paul is saying here. Your servants of whom you obey, sin or righteousness, Jesus or Satan. So now Paul kind of flips it and he gets a little more positive. He says, but God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye, you were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from a heart, the heart, that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. So we were bound by sin. We were the servants of sin. We deserve death. But if we obey the gospel, these people have obeyed the gospel, and now they have a new master and they're servants of righteousness. Verse 18 says, being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. It's impossible to be neutral here. Everyone has a mastery, the righteousness of sin. So it's up to us to choose. But on the other hand, it's also an incredible promise. God not only requires us to live without sinning, but he enables us to. Some people live, I think, below their privilege. God can even free one from sin. It's like the lady who heard about this new technology called electricity. She thought that was really cool. So she decided eventually she was going to try it out. Got the electric company. They came. They installed everything. Got it all set up. And she was so happy. It was working. It was great. Now one person at the electric company was paying close attention and realized that her electric bill was so small she couldn't be using her electricity. He called her up to see what's going on. What's wrong? Is it working? She's like, oh, it's working wonderfully. It's so convenient. As soon as I get home, I can flip the light switch on and then I can find my candles to burn so much quicker before I turn the light switch back off. Electricity would do so much more for her than that, right? But she didn't realize, it seems like, the power that she had access to. As Christians, God will free us. He'll purify our hearts from sin. And I think it's sad when we live like that lady, not realizing the power that God has available for us. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer us to be tempted above the irreable, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Any temptation that comes, be honest, it says it's common. Satan tempts everyone like he tempts you. But also, whenever it happens, God's already made a way that you can bear it and escape it through his power. Not without, but through his power, you can conquer any and every temptation, Paul tells us. Probably my favorite verse in scripture is Jude 24. It says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. God can keep us. That's the glorious truth of the gospel. And to be honest, it's vital that we understand it. God can keep us from sin. God can free us from sin. So in conclusion, what do we learn? I think there's a couple points I have here. First of all, at the beginning I talked about how sin exists in two ways. There's acts of sin. That's a voluntary transgression of the known law of God or disobedience, rebellion against God. But then there's the nature of sin. It's the corruption of sin. It's like a disease that we inherit from Adam that we're not guilty for, but encourages us to sin. So secondly, 
Christians don't sin, Paul tells us. Romans 6.16, he says, Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. 1 John 5.8, We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and the wicked one toucheth him not. And then finally, we can be freed from all sin, both acts and the nature Romans 6.22 tells us, But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. So Paul ends on a positive note. It's a wonderful, blessed freedom that God died so we can have. Thank you for your time.